This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. This episode is sponsored by The Latte Co. If you follow me on social media, you'll know that I make Milo smoothies all the time and I'm always putting a powder in them. That powder is created by The Latte Co. It is 100% plant-based. They have a baby latte, which is for 12 months and up, and then a kiddo latte, which is what Milo is using right now, which is for 24 months and up. You can put the powder in just water, you can put it in smoothies, you can even throw it in baking. It's made with organic, whole food ingredients, it contains more calcium than cow's milk, has a huge range of vitamins and minerals, it is gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, and it is nut-free. I'll just read off some of the ingredients here. So hemp hearts, pea protein powder, grinded flax seeds, beetroot, green cabbage, kale, broccoli, tomato, pumpkin. I mean, it goes on and on. I consider this stuff my secret weapon and it's so nice to give Milo a smoothie that has this powder in it and I know that he's getting a bunch of nutrition. The awesome people at The Latte Co. would like to give you guys 10% off and free shipping on your first order with the promo code THEMOMROOM10. You can find the link in the episode notes or you can simply go to thelatteco.com. I cannot recommend this stuff enough. So remember, it is promo code THEMOMROOM10 for a 10% discount and free shipping. www.thelatteco.com. So today I'm speaking with Aaron Wright. He is the author of 13 Doors, which is the book club pick for the Mom Room Book Club in March. I'm over halfway done now and I'm loving the book. It's really made me think about what accessing special education in Canada looks like and his own experiences have taken place in the U.S., When Aaron's daughter was diagnosed with autism at an early age and initially denied access to special education, he began to write about his family's journey. This memoir has turned into the novel 13 Doors, which took more than four years to write. Aaron's ultimate goal is to engage a national audience in a deep and meaningful conversation about the most vulnerable students and how they are losing their access to a suitable education. Also, what can be done to change the system that is traumatizing children and their parents? So to start, I thought you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your family. I know you're trained to be a nurse, and I'm curious if you thought previously that writing a book would be something that you would do, and are you also still practicing as a nurse? Hey, thank you for having me. (laughs) Great. Yes, I am. Well, it's kind of hard to say if I am a nurse or not anymore. I work... I've been a nurse for about two decades. I started at the bedside in an emergency department in Oakland, California. Kept going to school and became an advanced practice nurse. So I'm a nurse practitioner. I worked clinically really as that as my focus in trauma and acute care surgery for about a dozen years and then transitioned into hospital administration. So I now manage the trauma program at our regional trauma center in Northern California. So I wrote a lot of stuff that's more peer-reviewed, right? Like as part of scientific type stuff that you would submit to journals. 
And I always liked doing that. I always found it fascinating, but it was completely devoid of adjectives and anything imaginary, right? It's very cut and dried and factual and very boring, unless unless that's really your area of focus and that's what you want to learn about. So I always kind of had this idea that maybe at some point in my life, I would do something that was kind of outside of that box. I, I really didn't know how, when, or why that would ever come to pass. But writing kind of creative writing came more as just journaling at first. So it was more of a way of kind of me unloading what I needed to unload, whether that was a stressful day at work or a stressful day at home. It really started off as just kind of scraps of paper that, you know, if I was sitting in the car, I was sitting at lunch or I was sitting somewhere, you know, I'd I'd jot down these little notes of these thoughts that I was having. And it really became a collection in my, my nightstand. And then at some point, in our journey with both kids, but particularly my daughter, it really started to kind of gel as I need to be able to tell this story in a way that people who, well, two ways. One, people that haven't lived it would be able to kind of have a window in to see what this life is like. And then two, for the folks that have lived it, being able to almost like a mirror, like a reflection that I am not alone in this experience. You know, this is something that I too have, have had to go through and just how difficult that can be. So it really started kind of as a mental health exercise really for me at first, and then moved into something that I thought, okay, this is potentially really a way to start a conversation and to reach and help people. I know you, we chat a lot on Instagram. I read this book, and as I'm reading the book, I'm always wondering like how close is this book to your actual life and what you guys went through? So can you speak a little bit to that? Because as I'm reading, I'm like, oh, and I'm picturing you as the main character, right? (laughs) But I don't know how close it actually is to your life. It's pretty spot on. I'm not that creative. Okay. I I can't deviate too much from the truth because that's, that's really all I know. But I did change... So the only things really that have changed are names and some places. You kind of have to jump around a little bit with timelines to make things appear more seamless than they were or, you know, compress timelines. But really, it's the names. And I did that really to protect the people that protected us. And I also did it not necessarily to protect the people that weren't protecting us, but to not call them out personally because I did not want this a story about oh, well, the issues that they were having were because of X, Y, and Z person. And if you just deal with those people, then, right? So it wouldn't be, they wouldn't become the focus. The system and the environment really became the focus of the story so that someone couldn't pinpoint at one person or one school or one location and say, well, that's the problem. And it only exists in that one specific environment or arena. And if that were addressed, well, then, you know, problems are gone. I, I really wanted this to be reflective of the problems that are not only regionally, but statewide, nationally. Problems in general and not make it kind of like a news story about one specific case. Or a gossip, right? I'm not trying to tell the town's gossip. I'm not trying to tell some salacious story. I really didn't want it about those individuals or those, whether it was schools or environment in particular, I really wanted it about the system that is so broken and so wrong for so many families. And really to, to get people to, nobody wants to hear somebody's complaint or rant. So it really needed to be a story that people who haven't had our experience, or that might be somewhat adjacent to it or have had no experience with it at all, 
would be able to find themselves in it too. Cause I think everybody's gone through, you know, even just being coming a parent, you go through a transformation, right? It becomes sort of this advocacy journey in its own right. You're going to bump into these situations where your child needed something that you don't necessarily know how to provide. And how do you overcome that? What do you do? And when those obstacles become even greater, you know, how do you yourself change? So I think there's a lot that people that haven't lived our experience would be able to see in themselves just as if they're a parent. I just did an episode with, I think she's in California as well, Laura Pedix, and she's an occupational therapist and her daughter has sensory processing disorder. And we did a whole episode on that. And I always think, wow, if people don't hear these stories, then you just have no idea because you just go through your life and you're so laser focused on your own kids that you don't know about these issues that are going on. So that's why I love doing episodes about all these different topics because as parents, it's nice to hear other people's stories so that you have an idea what other parents are going through and instead of just being in your own world all the time. So your book is based on your story. So can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about and kind of like what that story is? Yeah, so it's really, it's my story to be completely selfish. It's sort of my transformation as a fairly young, new, naive parent to where I ultimately ended up or have landed today, which is, you know, being an advocate for disabled children. There's a bit of a trope or a stereotype with parents of disabled children that were, you know, kind of loudmouthed and always kind of takers and asking for things that, you know, we don't deserve or your child doesn't need. And what I really wanted to do is humanize us to show how it is that someone goes from, you know, one place. And in my circumstance, I just kind of bumble through parenting. You know, I have two children. My oldest, my son is neurotypical and... I just kind of, even though I'd gone through, you know, somewhat formal nursing training, I just kind of watched as things happened, right? Like, oh, okay, well, you know, we're eating solid foods now or, you know, okay, we're walking now. Okay, we're talking. Like, I had no real expectations for what was going to happen as a parent. And that absolutely got flipped on its head with the birth of my daughter. So there's a little bit of that personal story, but really it's focused on, okay, she is who she is, but then she needs to be able to have access to whether it's education or resources or therapy services, and you end up fighting this bureaucracy and what that does to you as a person and how you ultimately evolve as an advocate to fight for those services. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. 
This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm assuming the reason you wrote it as a novel as opposed to a memoir is because of what you were saying previously about you not wanting it to be, you know, just about one specific situation, but more so the general issues. Yeah. Well, I think there's actually research that shows us that reading novels actually builds empathy. It helps you see someone else's perspective. And I really didn't want it about... As much, obviously, as the story is about me, I didn't want it about me. I wanted somebody to be able to step into my shoes and see what our experience was like. If it were, to me, a memoir, a straight memoir, or a very factual nonfiction book about it would have been too much in alignment with the, any number of like factual, formal complaints that I had filed, you know, whether at the local, regional level, or at the state level, or even at a uh, national level. And I w- really didn't want this to be a complaint. Because I said, nobody really wants to read somebody's rantings, but they do very much want to experience someone else's experiences and understand what someone has gone through. So shifting the focus really from more of a traditional memoir to more of a novelization or I think the technical term is creative nonfiction or narrative nonfiction, turning it into that, turn it into something that I think people would be able to see themselves in as opposed to just seeing me go through something. I feel like it could be a really good movie. (laughs) That'd be great. Yeah. Who's listening? Should we pitch it to someone? Yeah. Right. (laughs) You know, on talk shows, sometimes they're like, they go through what actor would play the different characters. Like, you should think about that. I should. I really should. I think it would be a great movie. Like, for sure. I'm not, like, full disclosure, I'm not a fan of novels because I've been in grad school for 10 years. And I really have a hard time finding novels that keep my attention. And I don't know if it's because, like, I'm a parent, you know, I'm putting myself in your character's shoes. 
I love this book. I like really, truly. So I wanted to read you a quote from the book. Is it called a quote if it's from a novel? I don't know. Excerpt? Excerpt, yes. So I highlighted this because when I was reading this, it stopped me in my tracks and I was just thinking about it. So I wanted to ask you about it and if you could speak to it a little bit. So it says, after Magda was born, when we received such invitations, we lied most of the time as a way to decline and said we wouldn't be in town. So this was for like gatherings. You said it was easier. Magda couldn't tolerate babysitters and she couldn't tolerate restaurants. In essence, we as a family had become autistic. Our social capacity functionally diminished. That was so powerful to me and it just made me stop and think and I love how you phrased it as the family had become autistic so can you speak to that a little bit and maybe about your own personal experiences with that yeah and I think there's probably some stuff additionally later on in the book where really it became so there's probably multifaceted so there's just becoming a parent, right? Things change, right? You can't do the same things you were doing, you know, prior to children. So there's obviously that kind of change, which I think we had navigated fairly well after the birth of our son. And it was just sort of this, you know, normal transition into early adulthood that I think most married parents go through, right? The shift really became with my daughter, certainly that there were just certain things that she would not tolerate and we needed to be able to adapt and change to and to meet her needs as opposed to meeting ours. Her needs took front and center. So a lot of those things that we would normally participate in, yeah, we had to jump or step back from. But the other part that's kind of hidden in there too, and I, I try to touch on later in the book, is that a lot of people withdrew from us. So anybody who has a child who has some differences or is disabled, you know, they are they're looked at in a certain way They're, and it's not necessarily a, a conscious bias, but it might be an implicit or unconscious bias that they're somehow lesser or defective or there's something, you know, wrong with them. And even some of these kind of archaic ideas that somehow even just associating with someone who is disabled is somehow going to rub off on you or your, your child as well. So you're kind of cast in a different light and you're kind of categorized as, or you're marginalized, really, you're categorized as lesser. So part of it was, yes, us having to step back because our daughter just couldn't handle the things that we were, would normally do with our son. But another part of it, and probably equally large part of it, was people stepping back from us. And it really kind of cleared up you know, who truly was a friend, who really was an ally, who really was part of your community and who, who wasn't. And it was a, you know, it was a disturbing look, actually. The people that you thought were friends, but really weren't. When I read that, I was like, wow, I had never thought of it in that way before. But yeah, it's something that affects the entire family. Well, it affects the entire family. And I don't mean, I really tried not to, and this is not her fault, right? This is not my daughter's fault. This isn't her problem. She didn't do this to us. This isn't because she's defective or broken or wrong. It is just all of the things that you have to set aside in order to help meet the needs of your child, right? So, you know, if you're, you know, a neurotypical child, if they're not sleeping well at night, well, you as a parent don't sleep well at night. And so some of those things that you would normally 
do in your normal kind of everyday life, you have to kind of reprioritize. And those reprioritizations with her really became much more obvious or much more overt. You had mentioned like having to prepare and kind of schedule out different activities or outings that you guys would do. And it was similar when I was speaking to the OT that has the daughter with sensory processing disorder. She was saying the same thing. Everything, it's not just kind of like, oh, you want to go here and then walk out the door. It becomes a very planned and thought out thing, like just to go through your day. Yeah, it becomes very planned and prescribed. So early, I will tell you early on, one of the first quote-unquote diagnoses that we received was sensory processing disorder. And I actually think that that speaks to, there, there's a lot of similarities, but I actually think it really speaks to this kind of really sexist idea that women or girls can't be autistic as well. And that this is much more, uh, you know, our, so our CDC, our, you know, our National Centers for Disease Control in the States I will tell you, I think it's one in 54 children are identified as being autistic. But part of those statistics, too, they'll also tell you that it's a four to one ratio of boys to girls with the kind of that implicit notion that that girls are less likely to have it or less likely to be autistic, I should say, which is just flatly wrong. It's a systemic problem that they are identified less frequently which I think is a function of us devaluing women and girls in education to begin with. So do you think that is because some of the characteristics that they're looking for may just be more expected in girls? I think girls and women mask differently than boys. I think boys tend to be, tend to go down some of these rabbit holes. <laughs> but So if you look at some of, if you look at some of the, well, I used, I, for a long time, I would look at all of these like studies and, and, you know, read the stuff that's on the CDC. The way that children typically are identified as being autistic, uh, at least in the States, is primarily through the education system. It isn't necessarily through your primary care provider. So historically, it was always kind of driven through the school system and this, where they pull the statistics from, the national statistics from, are from school systems. So if you think about, at least in the States, the way children are referred for special education, it tends to be more of a, less of a needs-based referral and more of a behavioral-based referral. So, you know, teacher X is really having a hard time managing Timmy's behavior because Timmy's kind of all over the room and he's bouncing and saying stuff and doing this and that. So boys tend to manifest more physically and more in a way that would catch someone's attention as a quote-unquote behavior problem. Whereas girls are, you know, and maybe this is sexist in my statement, but they tend to be a bit more quiet and more compliant and more likely to be ignored because they're not perceived as being a classroom problem or a disruption. So it's a problem with the referral process. It's a problem with the identification process. Do you remember any moment where you were like, I need to write a book about this? Like, was there something that happened that you were kind of like, aha, like this is my aha moment. I'm going to write a book about this. Like this needs to be shared. There were bits and pieces. It, it started, it wasn't like a one singular moment, although I could probably tag it to one that you, you'll, I'm not sure if you're there yet in the book or not, but I did. Like I had these kind of moments where I was like, I just need to get this out of me. Like I have to write this down because my wife is much more the talker. So she's the extrovert. I'm more the introvert. So she'll have conversations with, you know, any number of people, including the wall. (laughs) 
Whereas I don't, it's just not my nature. So I would always more journal or internalize things. I remember, and I, I chronicled this in the book, I went to a school board meeting to advocate for some changes and for things, some things for my daughter that were kind of happening without giving a whole lot away in the book. And really to kind of push back against some of the things that the system was, was doing and fighting us. And I remember sitting there after kind of really pouring our heart out in front of, you know, our school board members and the meeting was packed because it happened to be a meeting where they were recognizing someone in the, that had worked for the school district for quite some time. And, you know, there were former teachers there, there was family there, there were former students there. So it was this kind of packed arena. And I, I stood up to, you know, say my piece about my daughter and what we needed. And I was rejected. I mean, it was really, it was, no one really took into consideration what I was saying. I felt very much that these were the people that were supposed to be helping. These were the people that were in positions of power that should have known what the rules were, should know how the system works, really should be there advocating, A, for children, but but B, but particularly for disabled children. I mean, if you think of, can't think of a more vulnerable population than a disabled child. And at that point, I had kind of exhausted what I thought were like the normal the normal processes of trying to get help, asking directly from school superintendents, asking directly from, you know, our school board or our trustees. I had written, you know, very formal, factual complaints, both at the local state level and even at the national level, and they all just fell flat. So I, I, I kind of had this moment where I realized that nothing that I was doing in this kind of factual arena, if that makes sense, in this kind of in real life, if I was going to change anybody's hearts and minds, it was going to be through storytelling as opposed to kind of bombarding you with, with a bunch of facts and trying to explain to you what the rules are and, and going down, for lack of a better term, kind of a legal, a legal route. So, and, you know, we ultimately did have to take, you know, those steps. It's a very quiet process. It's a, it's a process that's not transparent to anybody else. And that's just, I didn't think that that was okay right i think i think people need to know what's actually happening the there was a moment actually there's probably a couple moments that really reinforced that i was doing the right thing or what i think is the right thing when i was getting close to finally having the book in a form where i could take it to an editor and say okay look this is the story this is how it i think it all works and all the pieces have finally come together a member of our community, in fact, a family friend, she has single mother, has three children that were in special education. And her autistic son had been kind of had had the same issues that we had had with our school district. And he was ultimately placed at a school about 40 miles away from our town, which meant all sorts of crazy logistical challenges for her, you know, not to mention the fact that you know, he really was kind of rejected by our community and sent away to go to school somewhere else. He was killed by teachers at the school that he was sent to. He was killed? Yeah, he was killed. So he was restrained in a prone position. So he was held down on his stomach and sat on for about an hour and a half until he, you know, suffocated and asphyxiated on his own vomit. And it horrible. I can't imagine, right? I can't imagine that mother's pain, grief, like it's just a hole that will never go away. 
And there was just absolutely nothing in our community that happened because of it. There was no outrage. There were no functional changes within our school system. No one in our school system was held accountable for it. You know, it, it, it hurt on multiple levels, but it was pretty clear that he had been dehumanized and he'd been dehumanized because that's the way our system works. And I, I really knew writing it before this had ever happened. You know, I'd had this conversation with my wife all the time, you know, as much as I'm writing this for me and to help kind of, it was my mental health process. I really wanted to be able to advocate for families that just didn't have the same resources that we did. You know, I have a very strong marriage. I have a very supportive family. I have very supportive in-laws. You know, I've always had steady employment and have never had to worry about where my next paycheck was coming from. But there are so many families that just don't have that level of security. And when you don't, just doing some of the even basic advocating that you would need to if you had a disabled child is even that much more difficult. So I really wanted to get the story out to be able to help families like them so that hopefully, potentially, we could change the system to make it easier for them and less harmful for families. You know, you hear a story like that, and I'm like, how did I in Toronto and Canada not hear about this on the news? Yeah, and it barely made any news locally. And that just further you know, amplifies your message. And this is, you know, I, I wrote a piece for the local paper shortly thereafter, which even to get that out in the public space was a bit of a struggle. But can you imagine if this was the captain of the football team, right? Or the captain of the debate team or the head cheerleader, you know, there would have been a furor. Like it, there would have been a complete uprising in town, but because this was a disabled child, you know, a, a single parent situation, it was easy to take advantage of them and it was easy to see them as lesser than people. And that's just flatly wrong. That is shocking to me. Tragically, I think a lot of the legal issues are still ongoing and this has been a couple of years now. Like awful. But, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a wound that won't heal. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right, the quality is unmatched, you are going to love it, and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. 
Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner. They have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangler, which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. So the story takes place when your daughter is approaching the start of school. So where are you now? So how old is she now? Like, what's the time difference? She's 15 now. So she is. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she's a freshman in high school. I was not expecting that. Yeah. Wow. So I started the story. Well, I wanted, I really wanted to frame it. I really kind of wanted the people people to see, like I said, kind of this, you know, newbie parent and where you kind of start off. So I did. I started the book before her birth, kind of the events leading up to that, and then it it takes us through, I believe, the end of middle end of what have, would have been second grade for her, and then things kind of, if you can believe it, really escalated beyond that. But some of that I I just for legal purposes I couldn't get into. But no, we're in a much different place now. So yeah, she's a freshman in high school. She's managed to, quote unquote, mainstream uh, back into a, a traditional high school setting. Now, I say traditional where, you know, schools via Zoom <laughs> at this point. <laughs> traditional so she, for 2020. <laughs> right, traditional. Right. In reality, she hasn't yet stepped foot, you know, into a, a typical traditional classroom yet as a high schooler. But, you know, she, both she and her brother are cross-country runners, so... She's managed to, you know, make a nice social network that way and has developed some good friendships. And I think school has definitely been challenging for her, but, you know, I think she's enjoying it. And it's, it's such a different place than where we were originally. For sure. Does she or what does she think about the book and what you're doing as an advocate? Well, I didn't want to put the book out into space until I had her approval. So before the manuscript ever left our house, we read it to her, A, to make sure it was okay that what we were, she was okay with the story that we were putting out into space. And then she's actually a really big reader. So I, I honestly wanted her feedback and opinion on how she thought the book was written. So there were a couple facets to that. I think she likes, she likes the story. She loved the dog. So she loves, you know, being able to kind of reminisce and hear stories about the old family dog. The advocacy part, so she's, yeah, she's 15. So she's also, you know, in addition to being autistic, she's also a teenager. So there's a little bit of do whatever you're going to do, dad, right? Like, and I'm going to do my own thing. So, but she's definitely okay with it. And I think she's actually very happy with the way the book turned out. Oh, good. That's nice. I'm still shocked that she's 15. Because in my mind, I'm reading, you know, she's so young young in the book. And so I was expecting like, oh, she's six now or something. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, wow. Yeah, my son. Yeah, my son's. Uh, this is his senior year in high school. Wow. Yeah. At the beginning of the book, he's two, I believe, not quite two. Yeah. yeah. Toddler. Yeah. Because I remember thinking he was close to Milo's age. Milo's age. Yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah. I can relate to these pages. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, in the book, we learn a lot about the struggles that you had back then. But what would you say are different struggles that you have now at this stage in your life? Teenagers, that's got to be a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Social media and. So thankfully, neither one of them are really into anything social media. They're, They're kind of social media adjacent. So. Like their friends will say stuff and show stuff, but they're really not into it. Thankfully, we must have done something right. I credit my wife for this, but they're pretty level-headed kids and they have pretty good focus about, you know, school and and their sports and making sure that they're kind of headed in the right direction. And they both have, interestingly enough, like career goal plans post high school, which is something that I really didn't have. So it's nice to see that. And so they're they're focused on moving forward. So I don't know that they're... They haven't really gotten swept up in sort of the social media type stuff. They do dive into the YouTube rabbit hole quite frequently, but I think that's it's a little bit different than the, you know, the, the TikTok, Instagram world. Parenting, yeah, teenagers is a little bit different than it was parenting young children. I think the harder part for us now is just realizing that they will be leaving us at some point, you know, because so much of your life, you know, well, for my son, 17 years now, has been really kind of dedicated and evolved, revolved around, you know, making sure that, you know, the right things were happening for him and he was getting what he needed. And then you kind of got to step back and say, okay, well, what do I do now? <laughs> right. So it's, it's interesting. My wife and I have had conversations about, well, gosh, we can actually go out and do things again. Right. Well, it, at some point, assuming the pandemic is over, <laughs> Um, <laughs> assuming we can leave the house. Right. Assuming we can leave the house and, you know, go to restaurants and do those kind of things again. But it, parenting is just, it just looks different. I see it less as not that I was controlling or either of us were controlling as a parent, but it's, it's less about containment and management at this age. And it's more about just letting them know that there's some guardrails and letting them try and navigate and figure out their own way. We still, our daughter still struggles with like self-advocacy So a lot of what we do now is kind of built around how do you advocate for yourself? How do you navigate situations? How do you speak up for yourself? You know, so much of the, it's certainly the special education system in the States. I'm not sure about Canada really is deficit focused and kind of fail first model. So everything, you know, as a parent, you're kind of forced to look at your child in the form of a deficit or what is quote unquote wrong with them or what they can't do. And that really changes how you look at your child. Uh, Unfortunately, there's this kind of unconscious bias that slips into how you would view someone with a disability. And not only does it do it to you as a parent, but it also does that to the child. So it's, it's really rough on their self-esteem and how they, you know, how they think about themselves, how they feel about their own self-worth. So a lot of what we do now is has been focused on kind of supporting that. It's difficult because the education system is set up in just one way. Like that is one way that people can learn, you know, and there's a huge spectrum of how people learn best, 
I had this conversation with, I forget who I was talking to, but, and I don't know how to fix it. It's just the education system is set up in one way. Well, not everybody learns the best in that one way. So yeah, the fact that you said it's based on, like they look at it as a deficit. It's a a pretty archaic model. I don't know how you fix that. Um, I think there are some alternative methods of instruction, you know, that we tried early on, but without the right supports really weren't effective. When we left, you know, we kind of kind of think of her education in stages. So there was the early, early education stuff for the early intervention services. And then there were the early elementary years. And then when we kind of left the more traditional classroom around fourth, fifth grade, she entered a more of a smaller learning environment. And it was a program that was for kind of similarly disabled children, but the class sizes were, were much smaller. Pros and cons to it, but I, th- I think that the, that smaller environment was good. I think it certainly helped her from being kind of lost or left in the background or sitting in the corner and being ignored. Bad from the standpoint that it was homogenous and that you didn't have access to really a diversity of, of kids in the classroom. I don't know how to fix our current situation, but I know that the history of special education has always kind of been isolation, right? So these were the kids, at least in my day when I was going to school, were always pulled out of the classroom, never actually made it in the classroom, were educated probably in a trailer at the back end of the playground somewhere. And, you know, their lunch times and their recess times never overlapped with ours. So bringing that back to what a normal community would look like, I think would be a good first step in kind of helping education not be so singularly focused to what you're saying, right? There's just kind of this one rigid way of doing things. If you bring in other people, especially people that think differently and learn differently, you're going to be forced as a teacher and as a classroom to teach in a varied or different ways. And I think that would at least be an initial step. I was trying to think about because I spoke to my friend who works in this area in Toronto yesterday because I was just curious how it works in Canada. And I was trying to think back when I was in school and I think it's what you were saying, they're taken out of the classroom, which is detrimental to them, but also the other children to not be interacting with all different kinds of kids. Yeah, no, I say this all the time. I mean, my daughter definitely would have benefited from being in a quote unquote traditional classroom with, you know, a variety of neurodiverse or neurotypical peers. But those neurotypical peers absolutely would have benefited from having my daughter in their classroom, right? Because you learn about difference and difference isn't bad. It's not lesser. It's just different. But if you don't have those experiences, especially early on, how then are you going to be an adult, you know, in whatever workplace that you're in and think about including someone with a disability, you know, at, in your boardroom or right in your workplace that that separation has to end. I was thinking the same thing when you were talking about friends kind of backing away from you guys when she was younger. And I was thinking the same thing, like what a disservice to your children to pull away just because somebody is not like your child. Oh boy. So if there's parents listening who are in a similar situation, what advice would you have for them on how to be an advocate for their child? Well, at the risk of sounding litigious, <laughs> I, 
the first thing is document everything. My wife has a memory of an elephant, which is great, and I've benefited from it for a long time. Uh, I don't. So I need to have everything in writing. A, just for a historical record so that I remember what has happened. But B, should you ever have to call on it as you know, evidence or something to be able to show someone that you, in fact, had been following the, you know, whatever the required process is. The second thing I would say is make sure that you're aware of kind of your local or regional rules or familiarize yourself with what the rules and the policies might be. Because there are typically for, if you're going through a formal special education process, there's rules, there's timelines, there are things that have to happen in a certain period of time. So make sure that you know what those are. And at least in the States, the district, school districts are supposed to give those to you in writing and in a language and in your primary language. And then the other thing I would say is find a community locally. When we were kind of first starting out, I mean, Facebook was a thing but it wasn't quite the behemoth that it is now. And you didn't have quite as many kind of interconnected groups. So nowadays, if you're, if you live in like a small town or a small community, you might not have, you know, physically there might not be as many people in that community that have gone through the same experience that you're going through. But now digitally you can kind of reach out and create a community and find people that have kind of traveled this path before you. A, it's a good social outlet, like it provides you somebody to talk to, which is really important. But B, they can kind of show you and guide you and help help you understand kind of navigating your own personal experience. Yeah, community. That's always the answer, right? Anyone I talk to, it's like, find yourself a community. And it's so true. Because there's people that have done this before you. And there's a lot to learn from that wisdom. I mean, there's a lot of landmines I wouldn't have stepped on had I had somebody there ahead of me helping guide the way. I had asked if you had resources for parents. So it could be websites, a movie that you watch, documentary, whatever it might be, books. So what would be your three resources for parents? And I can put them in the episode notes. One resource would be find yourself a master IEP coach. Catherine Witcher is on Instagram. She, at least in the States, Canada, I'm not quite sure the, the rules, but I would imagine there are kind of similar people or similar resources in that you want to find someone who has some expertise in navigating these formal meetings that you have to have with your schools. In the States, there's my other two resources would be DREDF, which is D-R-E-D-F, and Rights Law, which is spelled like my name, but not affiliated with me. Or find someone similar to them that will provide you with like templated letters so that you're not having to create these things on your own, right? So you have concerns about your child. They may have, you may have gone to your pediatrician. Your pediatrician says, you know, you really need to think about talking to your school district because your daughter isn't quite meeting these developmental milestones and that will have educational impacts. These organizations have already kind of created like a template letter that you can literally just fill in your child's name, copy, print out, or email and send to your school district so that it helps meet those requirements and helps kind of start those timelines. Yeah, that's super helpful. I don't have them like exactly on me now, but I can certainly forward them to you. Perfect. Yeah, I'll put those in the episode notes for sure. But, it, but again, I don't, I'm not familiar with the Canadian system or your resources or how that referral process works for schools. But I would argue that find something similar, right? Find, find people that know how to navigate the system, either that they're, they have some sort of advocacy role 
at least in the States, I would tend to avoid people that ask for fees for being an advocate. You want to find some sort of nonprofit, not charging you type group. And then there should be someone I would imagine has some sort of online resources that would help you with template notes and and guidebooks, that type of stuff. Perfect. Maybe what I'll do for this episode is I'll ask my friend. And then if there's Canadian specific resources, I'll put those in there as well. So where can people find you and where is the best place to purchase the book? And I will put that link in the episode notes as well. But where's your Instagram and where can people find you? Yeah, it's Instagram's at author Aaron Wright. My website is the same, www.authoraaronwright.com. The easiest, far and away, the easiest way to get the book is through Amazon. If you're one of those people that is that doesn't like Amazon, you can actually purchase through my website and we'd be happy to get it to you that way as well. What are your future plans? To keep doing this, I want to try and be able to get into, it's great having conversations with people like you and this is fantastic and thank you so much for the platform that you have. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, truly this is, you ask what I want to do is I want to cultivate allies. Like I want people that don't necessarily, haven't necessarily lived in this world, haven't gone through this experience, but want to understand more about it and want to be able to share that experience with other people so that they know kind of what happens in this world. So I want to be able to keep kind of finding people like you, finding allies to help get the story out, but ultimately find myself in a, in a position where the story has gotten enough traction that we can work on actually policy implications, you know, talking with lawmakers and, and adjusting our laws and our rules. The original law, at least in the States, that protects disabled children, the kind of the foundation of it is as old as I am. It was written in 1975. It was updated, I think it was in the early 90s under the first George Bush presidency. And really hasn't changed much since then. But so much of the world around has changed and the needs of the disabled community has changed. So really being able to, like I said, I wanted this to kind of be a grassroots type movement. And one, build some momentum within our own community. But two, you know, get people who uh, would become allies to help move this forward so that we can make change on a, on a policy level. But I actually want people to, I want people to like the story. <laughs> yeah, well... That's that's going to be the easy part, I think, because <laughs> it is really good. All right. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation. Everybody go and check out his Instagram and get the book. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much. And I'm sure I will talk to you on Instagram. So, no, thank you so much for having me. But also, thank you so much for making your book for March. It really does mean, yeah, it really does mean a lot to me. And if... If in that group questions come out, feel free to reach out to me. Awesome. I will for sure. Well, thank you so much. I'll talk to you later. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Are you looking for a podcast that'll make you laugh? You came to the wrong place. That's not us. That's not us. Well, it is. We are a husband and wife who chat about raw, real relationship yeah, topics. like sex. Like money. Like marriage and kids. But we're not afraid to talk about how your newborn baby probably isn't as cute as you think it is. If you're in need of entertainment while you're driving to work, because that sucks, we can join you in the suckage, kind of like being in your ear. Not physically. So if you want to laugh, come check us come out. Come check us out. Brought to you by the Laughing Couple Podcast. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha